Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history, highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world, one episode at a time. Welcome to the Leading by History podcast season two. We've got a very special show for you today. We've got my man, the Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries of Teaching Heart History fame with us on Leading by History. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jeffries. Thank you so much. It is great to be with you. I love the podcast and it really is an honor to share some thoughts and ideas. Man, I've seen you uh, speak a couple times and, you know, have watched your videos and listened to just about every episode of the Teaching Heart History podcast. And man, you're doing some really good work. And let me say this, you know, I want everybody to know because I say this all the time. People always say, never meet your heroes, right? Um, Mm. I I have met a lot of people who are doing the work. And I'm not going to negate the fact that they are doing the work, but man, they're just not personable. And, you know, it's a little difficult to listen and watch people lead you in doing the work when it doesn't seem like they embody that upon interaction. Mm. And you have just been completely different, man. Like I have been working to get you on for some time. And I understand completely that you are, as we say down here in Virginia, ripping and running. And so I took no offense at all. But, man, you've responded. You came back and said, hey, man, just real busy. We'll get it done. You know, when I first met you, I mean, we engaged in about a little five to, to eight minute conversation while there were probably hundreds of people that were trying to talk to you. And I just really loved the kind of energy that you gave off, the positivity, man. You just were approachable. And one of the things I've just been reading recently was how a leader has to be reliable and an expert, but yet humble. And so Mm. I just wanted to say, man, that that is, you've been a humble, reliable expert for me. And I just wanted to start off the show by saying I appreciate you, man, greatly and what you do and, and your level of character. Well, you know, that is high praise coming from you for sure. And I, and I really mean that and I deeply appreciate it. And and the only credit that I can take for for my approach in that sense, I think with the vibe that you were picking up on is that I'm the son of social workers. And if if, if you got social workers uh, as parents and they churchgoers too, you can't help but be humble in service to the people. So that's that's where I'm coming from. It, it springs from the parents, springs from the parents. As as they say down here in the South, amen walls. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so so let's get into uh, the discussion because I want my teachers who hear our interaction today, our scholars in training, I want them to really walk away with some useful information today. What I really found powerful about the Teaching Heart History podcast, there were two elements. Number one, we already know that in that podcast you were going to talk about the issue of slavery and slave people and the history surrounding that and giving a more complete narrative. But I really loved that, you know, there was time taken to engage indigenous people and also the fact that there was time to focus on K-5 education. 
That's very powerful because I was with some teachers recently, and, and, and I'm an instructional specialist in my city for history, and so I have to do training and supports and, you know, provide resources and write curricula. And I was with some teachers, and, and we were going over primary source documents because that's a focus of my department for this, this district is to really have students engaging primary sources from the earliest grades. You know, we want to start... I mean, even as early as kindergarten with them at least seeing primary documents in the classroom, but to start looking at them around third and fourth grade. So I'm in this fourth grade class, and one of the white teachers says to me when we see the poster about uh, John Brown, and it talks about Negro, right? And she said, I don't feel comfortable saying that word with my students. And this is a fourth grade class. Mm. Mm. And I said, I said to her, I said, now, now that's a word you can say. You can't say the other one, but <laughs> right, that's but the one N word you can say. <laughs> that's one you can say. So, can you give us a little insight? Um, have you seen other other white teachers specifically who have struggled with not only the use of of the term Negro, but struggle with you know actually approaching history of us the, the history of enslavement? Should I say specifically? Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it is it is far more common then I think perhaps you and I and others may realize um, two things. One, I think it's important to acknowledge that the vast majority in our surveys through the Southern Poverty Law Center um, have found that the vast majority, some 80% of teachers, want to teach the history of slavery, want to teach difficult subjects, want to teach the history of race and racism in America accurately and effectively. The challenge or the problem is, one, they don't feel prepared in terms of knowing the material, so they don't feel comfortable with the subject matter, the content aspect. And then two, they don't feel comfortable engaging with the third rail of American conversation, which is anything that has to do with race and racism. And part of that is exactly what you were talking about with what the teacher was saying, her discomfort with even saying the word, the term Negro. Now, I often encounter conversations where, and I was just leading a, a workshop with teachers in a school district up here, and a constant question that was coming up from them, but then also from their high school students and the middle school students that I was working with was, well, what do we call black people? Like, mm. is, what's, the prop, what's the proper term? Is it black? Is it African-American? Like, what is it? And this, this idea of sort of identity wrapped up with names is part of our failure as a society to understand sort of the politics of identity and what is race. Now, of course, the short of the long is it's, you know, both black, African-American, people of color uh, are certainly all acceptable. Now, my personal preference is, you know, a brother of African descent. That becomes a little bit of a mouthful. But, you know, it, the, the idea is that there are terms that are current, that are acceptable, but then when we move back in time, it's important to connect this sort of naming and identity with change over time because we wouldn't want, just as you said, for anybody to be talking about, oh, I have several Negro students in my class today, right? Like, <laughs> no, we don't want to do that. And certainly the other N-word is off the table or even colored, right? You know, right. So those are time-specific. But from the teacher perspective, two things. One, it's totally appropriate when using a primary source, to use that terminology of the time in classroom discussion, 
no matter the age, really, as long as you take the time to explain sort of the politics of naming and identity. So you explain to your students, okay, this is a document. This is time-specific. They are referring to the people we consider today of African descent, African Americans, and the like, or black folk. But we do not use this as a contemporary term, and this is why we don't use it. So there has to be some educational uh, work done, not only on the part of the teacher, but also by the teacher for the student, because you don't want, and I, I get this with my students here at Ohio State very early on in the semester. If my class is large enough and we're dealing with, you know, sort of either early 20th century or during slavery, I'll have students who will constantly refer to, if they've picked up on the language of the primary document, sort of they're Negroes. And I'm like, no, we're not Negroes, right? I mean, so it's important to train our students on the proper terminology, but it's not just a matter of, you know, to use or not to use. The real lesson there is the explanation behind mm -hmm. the changing terminology and why it resonates at particular moments in time with black folk over time. Mm. Now, that leads me into, because, you know, I wanted to really address that for the teachers who are having that difficulty, and I think you make it clear that it's what's really important is developing the level of understanding that's needed first so that the teacher has confidence in knowing the do's and don'ts, right, and, and, and sort of having an awareness of what should or what shouldn't be said or done or, as you said, based upon time-specific markers in history, it would be appropriate to go back into the articles of old and to see, you know, mulatto, right, or mm -hmm, Negro, mm -hmm. color, et cetera, but we wouldn't use that today. But here, here's another question, though. There is a book that came out by another colleague, and, you know, Matthew Kay wrote the book, Not Light But Fire. And in this book, and, and I'm not asking for you for a critique of his book, but he brings up a point that I want to discuss with you. But in his book, Not Light But Fire, How to Lead Meaningful Race Conversations in the Classroom, Matt gets into, in the latter chapters of the book, an instance where they have to encounter the N-word mm -hmm. and that there are students from, you know, varied cultures who are part of the discussion. And from my reading of it, and I can ask him at, you know, at some point as well, but, you know, just from reading, it seems that he was saying and pushing and promoting that they needed to use the term, that it was mm -hmm. like a part of uh, a fulfillment of really understanding what was behind it. And so you have to engage it and you have to confront it because of your fears concerning it. I I, I struggle with that, but I, I understand what he's saying in, in context. So for me, this is how I would interpret that. And and you let me know if, if I'm on the right road. Mm -hmm. I, I, I believe that you can only encounter engage and analyze the n-word first of all in older classrooms so we don't want to do this in my opinion mm -hmm. you know pre-high school but you also have to have a community that has been established based upon a study of history the ethics of history the appropriateness of of uh, continuity in time and change over time and all those things that you said but a community of students who understand all of that 
who know how to engage history, who understand revisionist narrative, who understand you know prevailing narrative, who who understand language and how it's used in order to to give or to uh, take away power and all of that. If you have a classroom where you've been developing that over the course of a year, and maybe you have one of those courses that spiral where you get the same kids, you know, in the next year or whatever, maybe in that context where students are mature, they understand, you know, what the work is. And it's, you know, there's there's been a bond built where people have trust in each other. Then and only then would I be comfortable with the use of that term as far as from the reading of primary source documents, secondary source documents, discussions of the time. Am I off? What do I need to see? Open my eyes to that from your experience. Where should we be standing with that? Well, I think you're right. Uh, I think you do have to develop that base. You do have to develop that sense of community. You do have to ground the students in history and in, in historical thinking. You do have to uh, make sure they have a good grasp of sort of African-American history, uh, of the use of racial terror to maintain racial discrimination, and you have to, and, and you put this in at the end, and I was so glad that you did, you have to, in that community, build a sense of trust between the students. Mm-hmm. Now, the, now, that's critical because one of the problems that happens when you introduce the N-word into conversation, even when it's in an educational setting, particularly from the perspective of black students, is that the students have to trust where this particular teacher is coming from. And I see this all the time, not just at the, at the elementary or high school level, but even in colleges. You'll see a flare-up, right, teacher using the N-word in literature class. And they're like, why? You know, and then, then the teacher is complaining. It's like, well, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a radical activist. I have this long history of labor struggle, right? Mm-hmm. And the students are like, well, we don't know that. We don't know where you're coming from, right? Exactly. 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 We are in this class. So this is, this is the problem. The problem is even you can't assume that people, and this is from the teacher perspective, you can't assume that students in your class will know exactly where you're coming from, right? Mm -hmm. And in the absence of that, that's where you can start to create a traumatic experience. That's when stuff becomes open to interpretation. Right. And you also have, even even if you have established as a teacher a real sense of trust with the students of color, if you don't know what the relationship is between the students of color in the classroom and the white students, then, you know, you could just be throwing a grenade in the classroom mm. because that can be giving them permission to right. use it in a negative way, in a non-academic way, not so much in the classroom, but when they get out of the classroom. Mm. And, and, you know, our, our, our classrooms are, my, are, are part of a larger ecosystem within our schools and within our community. And so, you know, the, the the scenario that you laid out, I think, is the one in which it can be used. But my goodness, how much work and how much time has to go into creating that? 
I don't know if there are but a dozen of those actual classrooms, you know, over a two-year period. So my caution that, that exists. So, so my approach to it is, I think, a little bit, a, a mix of both. I think it is important, and this is just my approach to history. It is important never to forget. It is important to explain to students what this word is, what it has meant, how it has been used, how it has come about, how African Americans have taken it and tried to strip it of its meaning as most oppressed groups do with negative terminology. Mm -hmm. That being said, I still wouldn't articulate it in the classroom. Mm. I, w I would I would say, listen, we can we can read it, but we are not going to we are not going to speak it. Right. You see, because that is, I think, and, and some may quibble with that. It's like, oh, well, what's the difference? No, no, no. I think there's a big difference. Yeah. Because even saying that, you know, we're reading it, but even if we're going to read it aloud, we're going to call it the N word and we refer to it. We're going to recognize it as the N word. We're saying that, you know what? We acknowledge that this is a term of harm. And, but we also acknowledge that in order to confront this difficult subject, it has to be part of the discussion. But we are, in, 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 in part in recognition of the harm that is done and, part of, and part, partly out of respect to people of color and African-American folks specifically to whom it has been directed, we are not going to contribute to empowering it in any way or, right. or, or in allowing it to be misinterpreted in any way by speaking it. And it's a, it's a simple step. You just don't speak it. And this is, I, I, I think this goes across the board. I often, let me just say this too, you know, I often encounter um, white teachers, mm -hmm. well-meaning white teachers, um, who say, you know what, you know, you know I, I have a group of black students who, you know, I'm, they come to my office and, you know, it, my office is a, it's a safe space for them. Right, mm -hmm. and they kind of they let their you know they, they let their guard down, and they can kind of really be who they are. And but in part of that conversation, you know, they call each other. They're using the N word in their conversation with one another, mm -hmm. and they're like, "Well, you know, I kind of feel uncomfortable, but I don't want to say anything." And my take on that, maybe this is just me getting a little older, uh -oh. but I, <laughs> my take on that is, no, you tell them to cut it out. I said right. they have to, you know, as children of color specifically they have to be able to do the code switching thing that we know about, right? And this is when you're in an educational setting, that's a professional setting. Even if you are in the presence of somebody who is who has created a safe space for you, they are still an authority figure there. Right? And you are still the authority figure there as a white person. You can say, listen, I understand you like to use this with your peoples, you know, with your with your crew, that's fine, but that's a boundary we're not gonna cross in here. Right? Right. Period. Now, that doesn't mean that you send them to the principal's office, right? That just means you establish this boundary. And I think that's important for our kids of color to understand, like, okay, you know, this isn't – you're not going to walk in the church cussing, right? And this is the same thing. I wouldn't use that term around my grandmother, right, just in casual conversation, just like I wouldn't use cuss words. So certain stuff, if it's in the street, it needs to stay in the street, Right. But 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 that's part of I think a broader understanding that we have to teach young people. But it also means that we ourselves as teachers have to be comfortable establishing those boundaries and yet also crossing those boundaries in the proper setting when the work has been done in advance. 
Mm. Excellent, excellent points brought out there because I was thinking about back in January, I don't know how in tune you are with, with some of the, the battle rap, the, the different circles throughout the hip hop industry, but there was a, a battle in January between this white rapper named William Wolf and this black rapper who I think was from Philly named Avenue. And the buildup of the battle was that, you know, this, this white rapper is pretty good, you know, with the words. And then he's like, and they telling me I can't say the N word. And then he says, well, boom, he says the word. And mm. the other rapper goes, bing, and gives him a nice one piece, right? Extra spice. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and it became like everybody was like, whoa. So there was a big discussion online about that. Like, was the rapper wrong for punching this white rapper for using the N-word because he's from North Philly, he's from the hood, he grew up around it, he has the same struggle. And that's a part of the debate that we hear that a lot of our students will bring into the classroom as well is that, well, you know, he grew up in our struggle, he grew up in our neighborhood, he's a part of that. So he sort of has a pass to be able to do that. But I think what I hear from the greater community is that you may be given a pass in your specific little neighborhood or your street where you're from by those friends of yours. But in the wider context, no pass extends beyond that street corner. You can't, yeah, take, that, you can't take that from Philadelphia, carry it to Crown Heights, or well, the old school Crown Heights, right? You can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't carry that. Now. Right, you get what I'm saying? You can't, you can't carry that to other places and spaces. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's non-transferable. You right. know, the personal does not transfer to the public. And that, right. that, that applies not only to the rapper, the white rapper, but also applies to the white teacher, right? It's mm -hmm. like, all right, you know, we have these white academics, you know, and I encounter them all the time, right, who feel that they have their bona fides, they have their credentials, having worked yeah. with people in the struggle, and then, you know, want to use this terminology. And I'm like, you know, the, you're, out of, you're out of that setting. Like, nobody knows that about you, right? right. You don't get a you do not get a free pass on that, period. <laughs> the, the, the history trumps that, and you have mm. to respect the history. Like, mm. that's and the historical struggle which is beyond your birth, right? Mm. And that's the point that people don't get. And that's the, I think that's why black folk in general respond to that. And it's like, no, 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 no. You have crossed the boundary there because when you're using it in that context out of your circle of familiarity where people don't know who you are in that intimate way, right, what you then shoulder is the legacy of whiteness and racism. And mm -hmm. white folk have to understand that they carry that baggage with them into these spaces, right? And, and so when they shouldn't be shocked when, when students are like, oh, my goodness, or, the, or the, the brother rapper, you know, swings on them because that's the legacy. They're, ca they're carrying that baggage of racism with them into those spaces. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we don't have a lot of time because – you're busy, and I want to make sure I, I keep to my word. So I guess what I want to do now is let me ask you about something. We're, there is a push by the governor in order to get these African-American studies classes, you know, rewritten so that it can be taught properly because he's saying that he's seen that African-American studies has not been taught properly. Students are not aware of powerful African-American people outside of our traditional Harriet Tubman 
Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King. While I understand that, I want to get from you. What do you think, because there, in the city there's a, an effort to recreate the way in which the history of this city is told, and we're in Richmond, mm-hmm. Virginia. So there's a course that I'll just say I have, you know, a, a little bit of something to do with, in which, you know, it's rewriting the history to really revise that narrative so that it can be, to, and, and I like to say revision it as opposed to revise mm-hmm. it so that students can really get an understanding of, you know, you got Lumpkin Jail for th- that had enslaved people here with the facilities that were used for, um, there's blood in the soil throughout the city. Mm-hmm. My question to you is, as we come to the end of the program is, what things do we need to keep in mind as curriculum writers and as teachers when it comes to telling the history of a slave state or a slave city, if you will, that has that kind of, as Jan Carew would say, ghosts in our blood? How how would it, how should it be approached? What things do we need to look out for? What are the pitfalls? Give us a little insight in that before we leave. I think the, the, the guiding principle is always truth. And so just as you said that this is not about going back to rewrite history, but it really is inserting the truth into narratives of the past that have not been truthful, partly on purpose, partly out of omission. And so the truth has to be the guide. And so the question then becomes, if truth is the guiding principle, what is the best way to communicate that truth given the, co- the contemporary context in which we live? So the, in other words, the way we learn and the reason why I think too often we, 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 do, we have a deficit in what we're teaching has less to do with the past than it has to do with the contemporary moment, the contemporary context. We're not teaching the truth about slavery because we choose not to. Mm. And, and, and that has to change. So if we decide, okay, we're going to be serious about this and we're going to teach this history truthfully and we're gonna, we want to do it accurately as well as effectively, then we have to, and this is where I think we have to think beyond just, okay, I'm going to change this class. If we want to be serious about it, then we have to think about our, our entire K-12 curriculum and say, how can we introduce these ideas of humanity and, and, and those mechanisms that were designed um, such as, such as uh, slave trading warehouses and the like? What kind of language that were designed to dehumanize? What kind of language are we going to use? Are we going to talk about slaves or are we going to talk about enslaved people? Are we going to talk about slave masters or are we going to talk about enslavers? Are we going to name people or are we just going to gloss over and talk about systems, right? I mean, so we have to be serious about looking at how we teach all aspects of the institution of slavery. Because just as you said, it's not enough to talk about Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and a handful of other, other folks who then become exceptions. I mean, he's never talked about the ordinary people and the way, other, and the way uh, ordinary enslaved folk, everyday enslaved folk, resisted as well. Because then you walk away doing almost more harm than good, reinforcing this notion of this false notion of black folks somehow being complicit in their own enslavement. Mm. So I think we have to be very strategic in how we approach teaching slavery. It can't be one-off, and it really has to be fully integrated into 
the whole curriculum as it relates specifically to social studies and to history. So it's not enough to sort of say, okay, today we're going to talk about slavery, but we're not going to talk about slavery when we talk about the Constitution. We're not mm. going to talk about the institution of slavery when we talk about the development of our legal system. We're not going to talk about slavery when we talk about the Civil War, only when we get to we want to talk about the Massachusetts 54. So that aspect of truth-telling has to be fully woven into everything that we do when we come into the classroom. If we're just going to sort of isolate it, then we're not, we're not actually teaching it in a way that needs to be taught. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have classes that, that dig deep, right? That's the specialization. Those are the specific courses on African-American history and African-American experience that offer a different view of not only black life but also American life. So that's vital and critical, but that's not enough. It also has to be woven into our courses on government and our other courses on social studies and the like. Wow, wow. Very well said, and that gives me a lot to really think about because that's exactly what needs to be done. And I'm going to tell you as as a, a person that writes curricula for, for these courses, it is a lot of work. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and there's always just, there are always such limited resources, especially in, in urban environments, inner city school systems, etc. The resources are always low. The people who have the ability to do the work are always scarce because they're doing so much of the other work that there's no time. You get what I'm saying? That yeah, the, I got you. The people who can do the work are always pulled in, in many different directions. So, you know, but that is exactly the vision, and I, and I thank you for adding on for that. I, you know, it has been a pleasure to have you on today to just sort of have an opportunity to talk with you about these things. I think this is a very important podcast that I think will be beneficial to many teachers that span K through 12. Anything you're working on before you leave out that you want to share with us, a website, any writings? Um, you yeah. Know. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> there's always something. There's always stuff. So I actually just released a um, an Audible original series, uh, 10 episodes, on great figures in the civil rights movement uh, that's available. That is really, is really, I, I was I was a little hesitant going into doing this project because I don't teach the movement through individual lives. I don't think that's the best way to teach it. But I was able to. But they were like, look, that's the that's the way that people engage it. I said, all right, Ella Baker, you got to start where the people are. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I said, okay, I'm going to take these ten figures and weave this story of the evolution and development of the civil rights movement from Marcus Garvey, the African-American freedom struggle from Marcus Garvey, early 20th century, through Ella Baker and Charles Hamilton Houston, through some names we don't know, Diane Nash not often coming up, but then also through names we do know, reimagining uh, Rosa Parks and Malcolm X and Martin King, you know, all the way through the black power era. So that was a fun exercise that's available now, um, you know, for those who are into sort of the audio book culture. Uh, And I've been listening to it again myself, and I was like, you know, I, I didn't do a half bad job, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's pretty good. And, and and it's something I think that even for younger listeners, not just for teachers, I'm still thinking about how I, I even may be able to use that as assignment, you know, one episode. So, hey, 30 minutes, listen to this, see what you pick up on, um, you know, and, and then where it begins and where it ends. So I would love to be able to share that, at least share that out with uh, with your listeners who are already into podcast culture. So that's a long note thing by. Oh, and then, and then just lastly, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up the second after second season, as you were mentioning mentioning of, of teaching hard history, but we're gonna do a third season and we're
we're going to start probably we'll start recording this summer and start releasing in the in the fall, and that's going to be on the civil rights movement, the African American freedom struggle. So we're going to, you know, develop in a whole suite of resources and primary sources. We're going to talk to scholars, you know, about how do we teach the civil rights era accurately mm. and effectively, building on the work that we have been doing around slavery and this post-emancipation period into the civil rights era. So the work continues. You know that the work continues, and we're just out here trying to. I'm just out here trying to do my part as a part of this broader team, this broader community that you are absolutely a part of, an integral, uh, an integral part of, and trying to make sure that we get this history correct. Man, Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, we thank you for being with the Leading by History family today, and um, thank you for sharing you know, your latest work. I'll definitely go and check those things out. Hey, man, I hope and desire the best for you and yours, man. I, I love to see you know, your messages uh, come up about your conversations with your youngest daughter and, you mm. know, your interactions and all of that. I think that in of itself is just really just great programming. You know, you hear people on uh, in social media, they said, this is the content I'm here for, right? Um, right. You, 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 you just provide so many opportunities, man, for us to think about, you know, ourselves in light of America and who she is and who she's been and Man, just the the work you're doing is great. It's fantastic. I respect you much and uh, really appreciate you coming on and everything that you're doing to change the course that, that we've been on going in the wrong direction to help us all get in the right direction. So thank you so much for coming out. And from those of us at Leading by History, we say to you, peace. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We look forward to getting back with you again. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace.